how slow you are. If you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand. And these gentlemen will be glad to give you one. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. mention one thing to you and then we will get into God's word for today. This Saturday is the third Saturday of the month, which means what? All right, we're getting trained. That's impressive. Help group is this Saturday at the Bartlett campus. And if you've never been, you need to go for your own personal edification and blessing and benefit. Uh, We will minister to approximately 300 families Saturday, give them food and clothes and get to pray with them and love on them in the name of Jesus. Just be kind to people. Uh, It's a a fantastic ministry and God has really blessed it. Uh, Mid-South Food Bank is just, uh, we just overwhelm them with all the stuff that we get and uh, they've given us like freezers and stuff because we're their number one distributor now of food in this entire area and God is just... uh, uh, if you, go, if, you become, if you go and push carts and go to the automobiles with the people when they're loading their stuff in and ask them if you can pray for them. Again, I know you may not be comfortable doing that, and if you're not, you don't have to. But you will be blessed beyond belief in, in how they share their heart with you, the tears, um, how they appreciate the fact that you just, there's a group of people here at this church, they don't want to do anything but just love us and be kind to us. In the name of Jesus, and it's, uh, it's, it's very powerful. Now, having said all that, particularly in the summer, we tend to have fewer bodies just because people travel and are busy and a lot going on. So we, we uh, need cart pushers. We need people to hand out food. We need people upstairs to help with uh, handing out the clothes and just keeping people moving. And, and sometimes we need people just to be on the parking lot with eyes on the parking lot. Sometimes things uh, like Chris, you just sit on the back of your pickup truck and smile. And uh, if we need to call the Bartlett police, then we call the Bartlett police. But that's only happened once or twice, so uh, God handles all that stuff. So Saturday, if you're available, particularly from 10 to noon, that's the real uh, rush time, from 10 o'clock till noon. But I know I've uh, closed sometimes. We've been up there as late as 1 o'clock, handing out clothes and but you've got to tear down. If you want to get there at 8 and help set up, you can do that. But from 10 to noon, we really need the cart pushers. And so if you can help this Saturday at the Bartlett campus, that would be great. All right, Acts chapter 17. If you'll take your hand out, we now have Paul, as we continue to move through the book of Acts, second missionary journey, we now have Paul at Athens, Greece. Also, it is part of the Roman Empire. We went over all of that last week. So here's where we are. If you'll take your hand out and look at it, some of us don't have a handout. Shall I call you out by name and say you don't have a handout? Okay. My own granddaughter, no handout. All right. You look on your handout at the top of it. Again, we have Paul at Athens. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And last week, what we looked at is that Paul's at Athens and he's by himself. He's all alone, but he's not alone because greater is he that's within me than he who's within the world. He's got the omnipotent God of the universe. His God, his father, his daddy, as he will later write, Abba, father, with him, 
The Holy Spirit is with him and in him. And he's simply at Athens waiting on Silas and Timothy to get there so they can go on to Corinth. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks as they, they get to Corinth. He's, that's where they're headed. And he just kind of stops at Athens because he had to flee Berea. He's waiting on them to show up. So he just goes sightseeing like any of us would do. For example, if you were stranded in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, what are you going to do? You're going to beg God to get you out of Kosciuszko, Mississippi. Uh, I'll tell you a story. My wife won't like this, so hopefully she ain't paying attention. But in 1970 or 1971, we went on a a youth trip with our church, and uh, I think it was 1970, and I'd been saved like four months, and I didn't know anything about being Christian. I didn't know anything about how to treat people. Uh, I'm just cool. You know, 16 years old, you're cool. So I wore mirror shades, and 5'10", 120 pounds. I was all man. So... We go down to Panama City Beach, like everybody, every church group does in the world. And we're all on a school, yellow school bus, all of us. And John Latimer was our youth pastor. That's how long, 50 years ago almost. And, and so he's, he's driving the bus, or another guy was driving the bus. And, loose, and in Loosedale, Mississippi, the transmission just falls out. And I happened to be up at the front of the bus at the time. And the, I think it was a guy named Jim, I forgot Jim's last name, he was an ex-Marine. Um, anyway, he holds this thing up and says, what do you want me to do? It's the stick shift. What do you want me to do with this? And anyway, we break down in Loosedale, Mississippi. You ever been to, how many of you been to Loosedale, Mississippi? All right, a few of you. Uh, ain't a whole lot to do in Loosedale, especially if you're cool, 5'10", 120 pounds and cool. So I've spent my time impressing people as we were unloading the bus and waiting for another bus to come get us. And in the process of that, that whole time as we're breaking down and uh, 1970, that particular trip is when my wife and I began to realize, or she already knew, and, and I began to realize this is a pretty special person, and she uh, indicated to me that we'd be spending the rest of our lives together. And what do you say when you're 5'10", 120 pounds, and you're 16? What do you say when a girl says that to you? You say, no, nah, I'm cool. I ain't getting married. I'm too cool for this. So three years later, we're standing in August 24th, 1973. We're standing at the altar getting ready to exchange our wedding vows, and she leans over and says, I told you. (laughs) Now, 46 years later, what does she tell me every time I mess up? I told you. If you you just listen to me, your life would be a whole lot better off. And you know what? She's probably right. All right. So here's Paul. He's in Loosedale, Mississippi. In his case, he was at Athens, probably a little cooler place to be than Loosedale. And I have relatives from that area, so I, I spent some time there. So, not Athens, Loosedale. <laughs> It'd be cool to say you were from Athens, wouldn't it? So nobody, you, didn't have, you wouldn't have to say Athens, Georgia. You'd just say, I'm from Athens. So He decides he'll go sightseeing like anybody would do. We saw last week he goes walking around, and let's just look for a moment, Acts 17, 17. 1717. Excuse me, 16. 17, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. That's where he is. He just simply goes out walking around because he's there waiting for them. And we talked about this last week, so we're not going to go back over all of it. And he's just grieved in his spirit in his soul for these Athenians who 
simply are seekers of truth. They talk about philosophy all the time. We're going to see more of that in a moment. They spend all their time discussing and arguing over different philosophies of life. And, and he sees all these thousands of public idols and statues. And he, and he sees that they're given over or taken over, dominated by idols and the satanic grip on this city. And it hurts him deep within his soul because he loves people. And the call on his life is to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that's these people. He wants to meet them, share with them. So if you'll notice on your handout, and I've intentionally put it there. So what he does, he meets the Athenians. This is what we looked at last week. He simply meets them, number one, where they are physically. He meets them where they are physically. He went to the synagogue and with the, the Jews and the Gentile seekers there and shared with them Jesus and the resurrection. He goes into the marketplace and on a daily basis, he's reasoning there about with them, where they are, meeting them, listening, talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. And then finally, you see him at Mars Hill, verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, many of them, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship, without knowing him, I declare to you. This is what we talked about last week. As he's walking around and he sees this, the, all these statues, and we talked about how there were many to the unknown God, and by this time probably one was left just as a shrine, kind of like a generic, in case we left anybody out, God. He said, him you ignorantly worship. I know you are seeking truth. You are very religious. That was a compliment. Yet you want to know the truth. And you've got an altar, altar to the unknown God. Let's talk about that. So he meets them where they are physically. He meets them where they are spiritually. That is so important that we understand. Our goal as Christians when we interact with people is not to belittle them, not to put them down, not to win an argument, not to make them feel inferior. It is to share with them the truth of the gospel so they can be set free from whatever satanic grip is on them philosophically, whatever they believe. We want to win souls, not arguments. We want to see people set free, and it's so pretty beautiful like today. You see an adult get baptized. That's rare. For an adult to say, I, and, and, and Cheryl came to me and said, I want you to baptize me. And we sat in my office and we talked about it. And she said, I want everybody to know that I'm a Christian and that I want to follow Jesus. That's rare. It's so beautiful. Because that's the business that God is in. And by the way, if you look at the top of your handout, the call on our lives is to go into all the world and make Learner followers of Christ, see people get saved, see them introduced to the church at large, baptized as a public statement that they are born again, they are Christians, and then see them grow in their faith so they can share Christ with other people. And you need to understand that where you are is where you are. But don't ever be satisfied. Continue to grow. Ask the hard questions. Study the, the word of God. Get involved in Bible studying, personal growth, so that you can share your faith with other people. You're not going to be the Apostle Paul. You, you know why? Because that's not who God called you to be. Who did he call you to be? 
You. You. He knew you before he created the universe. He saw you. And he made you anyway. You ever think about that? We were sharing in our class this morning one of the best ways to pray. And I find myself doing it all the time. It's just stop and say, thank you, God, for loving me. I don't deserve that. Showing me grace. I didn't deserve that, don't deserve that. For being merciful to me, a sinner. I think about that poor thief on the cross. and He deserved to be there for his crimes. And he just turns to Jesus and says, have mercy on me. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, even as he's dying for that man's sins and my sins and your sins, having been beaten basically to death and now being tortured to death, and his grace says to that guy, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the Jesus that we need to share with our world. Maybe not who they, they think Jesus is, that we want them to understand how much he loves them and is showing them grace and mercy and wants them in the kingdom. So Paul says, let's talk about this unknown God. And that's what I want to do today. It's look at how Paul, in the midst, the Areopagus was that kind of that court of philosophy and religion and education at Mars Hill. And how he interacts with them. Now he's going to share with them. Remember, they, they said to him, we want to hear this new doctrine you're talking about that's come to our ears. We want to hear about it. We want you to share with us your philosophy, see how it compares with ours. Remember, you had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics, and we talked about that. And they, they weren't the only ones, but that's the two that are mentioned here, the primary ones. And so Paul says, I see that you are seekers of truth, and you, you really want to know, and you meet, and you talk about it, and you got this unknown God. Let me declare to you who I think that God is, that he is known, not unknown. Scripture says in, in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We're unique. Talked about this last week. The epitome of everything God made. We're the only thing made in his image. And Paul says, let's talk about this. Based on your Athenian gods and all that you're seeking, let's talk about who God might be. Who I see him is. So number one, you take your hand down. Let's talk about the known God. That's where we are today. I want to talk about the known God. Number one, verse 24. Paul says, I want to proclaim to you this unknown God because to me, he's the known God. Verse 24. Number one, God who made the world and everything in it. So number one, the known God is creator of all. Creator of all. Paul begins with what, Paul begins here with what's been called by theologians and even my nine-year-old granddaughter several years ago, when we were talking about my brother, she said, have you ever asked him where did he come from? Where did he come from? The ultimate apologetic, you can reject the Bible, you can reject Jesus, you can reject anything that has to do with God. I'm an atheist, there is no God. So then you want to discuss with that person, and I've done this on a number of occasions with my own siblings and, and many other people, where did you come from? So many of their responses will be evolution, origin of species, who just 
there was nothing, and then boom, there was this, and then we proceeded to where we are now. And if, you, if that's where you're going to plant your flag as opposed to creation, you got a problem. Because creation fits the evidence, both looking at it, we're not going to spend time today going over all the many, many reasons why our universe screams intelligent design. Even if you don't believe it's the God of Scripture, you don't believe it's the one true God who created the universe. Something did. Something designed this universe. So Paul begins there. Notice how he puts it in verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it. Please understand the context. This is real important. God says to them, excuse me, Paul says to them, God, he made the world and everything in it. He's the maker, not the what? Makey. That's Greek. Here's what Paul is saying. Remember who he's dealing with. God's everywhere. Thousands of them. They would create a God. When he didn't understand something, they created a God and they created a God. They made a statue. They created a background. They said the God is like this. He looked like this. And then they would do whatever they could do to appease that God. Who, who was God in that scenario? They were. They were. Whether it was Zeus or Hermes or Aphrodite or Athena, on and on. They would create him and say, this is what they were in charge of. And... But in that scenario, the gods that they were worshiping in ignorance, they had made. So Paul starts there. He says, the one true God, if there is a God. And again, in conscience and in creation, God has revealed himself to man, always has. If there is a God, you didn't make him, he what? He made you. He made you. Remember, understand again, the He's at the Areopagus, the setting. This is radical, different, as he shares with them. Because to the Epicureans, and the Stoics are the ones that brought him there, the Epicureans, all matter, no matter what it is, matter, pick anything, is eternal. It just is. It always has been. So there is no creator, there's just matter. For the Stoics, everything was God. Everything was part of God, whether it was this, it was the view, it was the chair, it was the floor, it was the sky, it's the moon, it's just, everything, everything is pantheism. God is just, we're all part of God. So to them, no creator. So Paul begins there. And again, there's so many, many, many things that point to intelligent design. Again, even if you don't believe scripture. Simple example. Raymond McHenry wrote the following, quote, to simply count the synapses in your brain, to count them at a rate of one per second would take 32 million years, end quote. 32 million years. They estimate now, this was this week I was reading, there are two trillion galaxies in our universe. Just, and you could go on and on. Probably the best way to understand this is just simply, like we're talking about the synapses in the brain, just think about yourself, how sophisticated you are as a human being, the intellect, 
the emotion, the ability to create. I was watching this week, be 50 years since we walked on the moon. And I remember vividly, many of you, those of you that were around, may remember what you were doing. And I was at a little church that I grew up in, and it was a Sunday night, and we all went over to somebody's house and watched Neil Armstrong step on the moon. Coolest thing. And they were talking about the size of the computers that they were using, how it all began right there, that technology. And now, how many of you own a smartphone? Probably most of you, if not all of you. And that, that phone that you hold in your hand, how much more sophisticated is it than that computer they used in 1969? Exponentially beyond that. How'd that happen? Who made that? The ability to think and move beyond where you are to the next great horizon is a gift from God. No other animal can do that. Nothing else in the universe is capable of that. Now, there may be some aliens out there. I, I don't know. But what I do know is who we are. We are created in the image of God, sophisticated. In Isaiah 40, the Bible says this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's eternal. He's the great I am. He's the only self-existent, self-sufficient, we'll see that in a moment, entity in the universe. He's the creator. Revelation 4 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, pardon me, the glory of God, and the firmament atmosphere out there shows his handiwork. Last night, I love to go outside when it's raining. Again, Mary said, if you would listen to me, you shouldn't do that. I love to go outside when it's storming, when it's raining, and just, I was actually outside last night shooting basketball, and then the rain made me quit, but I love to just be out. And there was a break in between the rain, and I'm out there in the driveway shooting basketball, and I just looked up to my left, and as the cloud parted, I saw the moon. And again, I've been watching this week. I went back and watched the moon landing again, and I see the moon. And the Bible tells me every time I look at that, it's a reminder of what? God says, I'm here. If I can do that, I got you, Randy. I got you. I love you. You're my boy. I know you're dumb. I know you do stupid things. I love you. I'm going to carry you through. I spoke that into existence. Trust me. God reveals himself. Second thing, not only is creator, he's secondly, verse 24, Lord of all. God who made it, the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. The Greek phraseology there means he is supreme ruler over all. Not a God. 
I had two Mormon young men visit my house this week. They, didn't t- they did not want to stay after a few minutes. And I hated that. I really wanted to, to spend some time talking to them and began to have a conversation. And uh, the funniest thing that came out of it, I mean, it was blistering hot, humid. You know, to come in out of the shade, you want some water, and they, they had water, and we start to discuss a few things. And I finally, unfortunately, came around to what I did for a living. And I, and I literally, I told them, and they started backing up. And we talked, they were very nice young men. I mean, they couldn't have been, they looked like they were about 14 to me. I know they were probably early 20s. But we're just talking. And they're talking about how hot it was, you know, and one of them, sweat's just pouring down his face. And this is before I really got into it. Sweat pouring down his face. And he says, man, do you ever get used to this heat? And I said, no, you don't get used to it. You just learn to deal with it. Now, what's sad about that, it's what they believe. They call it Christianity. It's not. The Jesus they believe in is not the one you'll find in Scripture, yet they tell you they believe the Bible is God's Word. That's why you need to talk to people. You need to listen in a loving, kind way. You're not trying to win an argument. I said that earlier. I want to hear where you are, and I want you to hear where I am. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what we need to do. Bright, intelligent young men who believe a lie. They believe a lie. And I guess maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I'm, I think about kids and children and these young men and I think, man, it hurts me to see that. It hurts. It should hurt you for your children's friends who don't know the truth, who don't know who Jesus really is. To love them, be there, and if you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, Daniel, one of, the, one of my greatest heroes in the Bible, I love Daniel. You know how old he was when he became the second most powerful man in the world? He was the wisest man in the world at the time. God used him incredible. You know how old he was? He's the same age as these young ladies sitting right here. He was 15. 15. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were young men. Young men. We joke about it and laugh about me when Mary and I met at age 16, and I've always been crazy. But when God saved me at age 16, you know what the one thing I wanted to do more than anything else? I realize part of it's my personality because I, I love people, always have. I just wanted to go talk to people about it, total strangers. I would button a whole adults. I didn't care. Now, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand love. But I did understand, man, this is pretty cool. Jesus can save you, set you free, and save you from going to hell. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Everybody ought to know that. By the way, that's true. It's the coolest thing in the world, and everybody needs to know that. That's our call on our lives as the church. So Paul proceeds from creator of the universe to owner of the universe. He's Lord of all. And notice how he puts it. Remember the context. He's Lord of heaven and earth, verse 24. He does not dwell, live, or reside in temples made with hands. Like 
your many idols that you have created. Even as he's standing there, the Areopagus, they were probably in the synagogue at this point, not at the synagogue, but in the marketplace, exactly where it was, we're not sure. But all around him were shrines. Just on Mars Hill alone, there were several shrines to the goddess Athena and Aphrodite and on and on. He said, God, who is the creator of the universe, God, who is the owner and the ruler of the universe, he doesn't live in a building. He doesn't live in an idol. We think that they're, they're stupid, but let's be honest. And when I was growing up, this is the way it was. The church building was what? Holy, God's house. God's house. According to scripture, yes, there was a tabernacle. Yes, there was a temple. God was teaching them something. But after A.D. 70, there's not been a temple since, and the temple of God is what? You look at the person next to you, and you're looking at part of the temple. We are the temple of God. I'll tell you a quick story, and then we will move on. And I probably shared this before, so act like you hadn't heard it and laugh anyway. So, the guy who mentored me and taught me so much from the Word of God, and he was talking about when he was a pastor in a, in a church, and um, his a uh, youth pastor was in the building in the, in the sanctuary and had a hat on, baseball cap. And a sweet lady went up to him and said, take that hat off in the house of God. And the young man replied, this, this hat is on the house of God. Now, the elderly lady didn't take that well, but theologically, he was correct, wasn't he? We are the temple of God. What is Paul trying to get them to understand? Remember context. You create all these buildings, idols, shrines, temples, and you think that's where your God is. No, the known God owns the universe. He doesn't need you to make him a temple. In Isaiah 66, the Bible says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you will build me? Where's the place of my rest for all those things my hand has made? I've created all the things you're going to use to build me this temple. All those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. Even as Paul is there, the Parthenon and all the great buildings that were there, who's trying to get them to understand the one true God is far superior to a building. And Paul and Isaiah was saying, what I'm looking for is not a building. I'm looking for hearts that will bow before me. Humble, contrite hearts who want to follow me. Not religious hypocrites like the Pharisees. You read the Gospels, you don't see Jesus going into the temple to participate with them. When Jesus addresses them, he calls them sons of Satan, vipers. He says, you're going to hell and you're taking people with you. They owned the temple and everybody who came around it had to pay them. God wasn't pleased with that. God is looking for the heart to bow before him. Next point, verse 25. The known God is the giver of all. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though we need it. he needed anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. 
Again, context. Here's what Paul's wanting them to see. Your temples, your idols, the things you make with your hands are not impressing God. He's not worshipped with your hands. The Greek English here talks about him, does, he doesn't need anything. You know, when we get the word, we, I love this, the English word that we get from that Greek word is therapy. Therapy. God doesn't need therapy. Most of us do. But he doesn't. He's the giver. Look what he gives. This is so cool. It's the idea here of serving other people to heal their pain and disease. God does that. He doesn't have the needs like we do. But notice what it says there in verse 26. Excuse me, the end of verse 25. He gives to all humanity life, breath, and all things. He's self-sufficient. He's self-existent. Jesus talked about it in the upper room discourse in his great high priestly prayer. He started it out talking to the Father. He said, glorify me with the glory we, plural pronoun, had together before the world was. Prior to the universe existing, what existed? God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and nothing else. Self-existent, self-sufficient, the eternal great I am. He doesn't need anything. He desires for us to worship him. It's not about our hands and what we can build him and impress him with. It's our hearts. In this statement alone, Paul wipes out the entire religious system that the Athenians would be operating under. Life, breath, all things. The Athenians and the Greeks, they had to constantly bring gifts, do things to propitiate or satisfy their gods. Jehovah God says, I will freely give because I love you. Psalm 104, the Bible says this, God causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth, man may bring forth food from the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Our Father in heaven Jesus said, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. James writes, every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And then Paul writes to his son Timothy these words, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Please don't miss this. It's one of the best ways to meditate on who your God is. The very fact you can get up in the morning and make decisions is a gift from God. The ability to go out and earn a living is a gift from God. The fact you're breathing is a gift from God. I was sharing with my class earlier, there's a friend of mine on the Bartlett campus named Larry Stallings, and Larry has been in a wheelchair as long as I've known him, and just fell a couple of, about a month ago, broke his hip, and he's been in the hospital, and he got pneumonia. I'm driving to the hospital yesterday to see Larry, and I called 
I know I wasn't supposed to do this, but I called to make sure Larry was still in the same room, and they told me he just passed away. So I, I talked to his friend who takes care of him. He also knew him from Bartlett. You know what the first thing I thought was? I'm sure happy for Larry. I'm sure happy for Larry. Every Bible study I would do at Bartlett, he'd sit right, he couldn't see, he was legally blind. You'd have to tell him who you were, and he's a big St. Louis Cardinals fan, so you know he's a child of God. <laughs> I'd go sit down next to him, say, Larry, how are you? And he would interact during the, the Bible study, and everything he had, he was very intelligent, had a lot of great things to say. You could tell he was into the Word of God. When I saw him last week, he couldn't see, he couldn't see. He's laying in bed. He couldn't breathe. He was really having a hard time breathing. And you know what was laying on the crook of his elbow? A little New Testament. He couldn't read it. But I guarantee you when somebody came in the room, he'd probably ask him to read to him. Because that's just Larry. I'm happy for Larry. Because Larry knew Jesus. He knew Jesus. I really want to stop here today because I want to challenge you. I'm going to go ahead and Darren and get ready. This is what I want to challenge you with. I just want to stop here today. I feel like the Holy Spirit wants me to do this. When you would sit and talk to Larry, Larry had a lot of difficult times in his life. When you would sit and talk to Larry, he'd want to talk to you about his Jesus, his cardinals. He didn't complain. He didn't moan. You see, Larry knew the God who was real, who'd set him free spiritually. Larry was in bondage physically. He was. He was in a wheelchair. He had to have help to do anything. But he loved to talk about Jesus. But here's the point. You think about the Athenians. Let's extrapolate that to our culture. No, there aren't 30,000 public idols in Memphis, Tennessee. But there are thousands of people here who have an idol. They live their life based on one principle, me. Me. The Jesus that Paul was going to lead them to, and we'll see this next week, lead them to the resurrected God of the universe who can set them free. It's the same Jesus who will set these people in Memphis free today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's my challenge to you. All their idols weren't doing them any good at all. As a matter of fact, there was satanic deception keeping them from God. And religion does that in many ways in our culture today. As long as I do this, do this, I'm good with God, like the two Mormon young men who came to my house. They believe a lie. Satan is the father of lies. He doesn't want you set free. He doesn't want you following Christ. And the reason I'm happy for Larry is I knew Larry, and I knew when Larry died where he went. Am I positive about that, about my next-door neighbor? No. Do I talk to him about Jesus giving the opportunity? I hope so. But I don't always take the opportunity. I'll raise my hand. I'm, I'm guilty. As much as I like to talk to people, I don't always do it when I have the chance. So here's my challenge to you. I want you to pray. Ask God 
to give you opportunities this week to lovingly, lovingly, not win an argument, just lovingly dialogue with someone about what they believe in a loving, compassionate way. Where are you coming from? Let me tell you about Jesus. Not preaching, not putting down, lovingly dialogue. See what God does. See if he doesn't give you a chance. Then the question is, are you going to take the chance? Again, I'm telling you there are times I have the chance and I don't. But God will give you the chance. You know how I know that? What's the top of your hand now? Go into all the world. Make disciples of me. You can't do it if you don't talk to them. You bow your heads, please. Father, we close our time out together today. I want you to begin with Randy because it is Randy's issue. That I would be sensitive to people around me. That I'd care about them. I'd want to know where they are. I'd pray for them. Talk to them. Listen. Don't preach. Listen. Where are you? I find that interesting. Like Paul. So you believe there is no God. Where, you, where did you come from? Let's talk about that. What do you think? You give us opportunities, Father. You motivate us to care about our neighbors, co-workers, friends, relatives. You never know. Just give us chances. I pray we take them. And Father, for somebody seated here today who doesn't know Jesus, maybe what they believe, they don't have that hope like Larry had. Let them know right now. Simply by turning to Jesus on that cross and saying, thank you for dying for me. Would you forgive me? Save me? I want that kind of hope. I want to know I'm a Christian. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stay.